0: From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. I'm Madeline Brand.
1: We just got a report in that there's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City.
2: I think we have a terrorist act of proportions that we cannot begin to imagine at this juncture. Okay, hold on. The, the people here, are everybody's panicking. And now
3: you, you have to move from talk about a possible accident to talk about... Something deliberate.
2: What we have been fearing uh, for the longest time here apparently has come to pass.
0: It's been 17 years since a group of jihadists turned their anger into a daring attack, an attack that was so audacious, even the organizers were surprised it worked. When the smoke cleared, it seemed unfathomable that anyone could have been convinced to do such a thing. Propaganda
4: is such a fundamental area of human activity. When I look at the most effective propaganda campaigns in history, I think they aren't really telling people uh, something new, but rather they're taking something that people have always thought and they're connecting that secret, hidden thought to uh, politics in in the world around them.
0: Nick Cole is a professor of public diplomacy at the University of Southern California He says, before 9-11, several events in the Middle East stirred resentment against the United States. And Osama bin Laden was a master at harnessing those feelings.
4: I see Osama bin Laden as being a very effective communicator. And part of his great strength was that he kept hammering away at three very simple themes that people weren't hearing from uh, other quarters of leadership in that region. And number one... That the United States was supporting what he called the apostate regimes, the idea that the regime in uh, Egypt was corrupt, uh, uh, the monarchies elsewhere in the region were corrupt uh, because of their connection to America, and there was a need for political change in the region. He objected to the presence of American troops in the Middle East, and he objected to uh, American support for Israel. And those three issues were at the heart of his
5: messaging.
0: But there were other internal factors that stoked extremism, says Stephen Hadley. He was national security advisor under President Bush.
5: Addressing the root causes of extremism, which are things like failed governance, fragile states, inability to provide local security, inability to provide justice and resolve disputes promptly, Uh, getting uh, jobs and economic activity going in post-conflict societies. Those are a lot harder, it turns out, and they require civilian instruments rather than military instruments.
0: At the time, America wanted revenge and could only see a military solution, war in Afghanistan.
3: America strikes back. Afghanistan is pounded with bombs and missiles from the air and sea.
6: We are supported by the collective will of the world.
0: It would be a while before the U.S. realized that military might alone wouldn't solve the problem. Diplomacy was sorely needed. But there were few people at the time who could carry that out. When the war began, most people we were bombing didn't understand why they were now under attack.
4: One of the things the Americans needed to do in the Middle East was explain why the foreign policy that it had chosen was necessary. Really basic elements in American foreign policy were never explained to ordinary people in the Middle East. And that means every taxi driver from Cairo to Beirut and back again has their own reason, conspiracy reason, why America is doing a particular thing.
0: Nick Cole actually helped create a blueprint for how to fight Islamist extremism beyond using force. And it's not a classified report that just a few people saw. It was, at one point, the nation's number one nonfiction bestseller, the 9-11 Commission Report. Today on America Abroad, we're looking to answer some big questions. Are we safer than we were before 9-11? There hasn't been a big terrorist attack on our soil since then. ISIS has lost almost all its territory in Iraq and Syria. Bin Laden is dead. And yet there are still thousands of extremist fighters out there. And their ideology persists in attracting new recruits, recruits who do carry out spectacular terrorist attacks in Western cities. To get a sense of what was proposed and how far we've come, we'll hear from a couple of leaders of the 9-11 Commission. We're focusing on the efforts made by the Obama and Bush administrations, and we'll ask top officials from those administrations what they did to counteract extremist ideology, where they succeeded, where they failed. And we'll go to Lebanon to see how effective a U.S. campaign to fund a local anti-terrorist organization has been. After the shock, the grief, the outrage and the horror of 9-11 came the questions. Could this have been prevented? And what could be done to prevent a similar attack in the future? Two questions the 9-11 Commission tried to answer. But there was also a fundamental question of what motivated the attackers in the first place. How does someone go from feeling marginalized to becoming fully radicalized? And what are the tactics extremist groups like ISIS use to widen the ideological divide? Rukmini Kalamaki is a reporter covering the Islamic State for The New York Times. She's also the host of the podcast Caliphate, which explores how extremist groups bring in new recruits. She got a firsthand account of how they do that from one of their recruits.
1: Abu Hussefa al Kanadi is the pseudonym of a Canadian man who, who claims that he joined the Islamic State early on in the period just after the creation of the caliphate. Meeting him was was pretty surreal. We met him in a hotel in Canada. Can I ask your date of birth? Yeah.
7: 1994.
1: And is it okay with you if we say that you're from Canada? His radicalization, in many ways, is is typical. He grew up like many young people alongside the internet. He did not completely fit in to his particular milieu. He's he's a Pakistani immigrant uh, to Canada, uh, a Muslim, but these were not really the problems that he faced. He's always said that in Canada he never felt any sort of prejudice uh, as a Muslim.
7: Like that was, I don't think that was a factor at all, that I was persecuted back here in Canada because of my religion. My sister, my mom, they've always been able to walk the streets safe. Everyone's really nice. You know, they're living a pretty good life here. But me, on the other hand, I always wanted something bigger?
1: Rather, I think it was a case of just not finding his way. You know, one one of those kids who is on the sidelines of the social circles in, in, in his particular community. And instead what he did is he, he found his way online. And he found a community uh, in cyberspace that he did not have in the real world. And in that community, he tripped and found uh, the Islamic State.
7: These guys, like, they explained how jihad fits into uh, the role of everyday life and how a Muslim can implement jihad.
1: Were you listening to the lectures of Anwar Awlaki at this point?
7: Oh, Yes.
3: Muslims of the West, take heed.
7: Yeah, I listened to a lot of his lectures.
3: There are ominous clouds gathering in your horizon. Yesterday, America was a land of slavery, segregation, lynching, and Ku Klux Klan. And tomorrow... It will be a land of religious discrimination and concentration camps.
1: Anwar Aulaki is, is kind of the Pied Piper uh, of, of jihad, let's say. He was an American citizen uh, born in New Mexico who became a charismatic preacher at the different mosques where he held sway. And after 9-11, he left the United States and uh, traveled to his native Yemen. That's where his ancestors and his parents are from. Uh, and he became essentially the, the most famous English speaking propagandist for Al Qaeda. He was a big deal when he was alive. American born
4: cleric Anwar al Awlaki, wanted dead or alive by US and Yemeni authorities.
1: But what is interesting about Awlaki is the stature that he rose to in death. He was killed in a drone strike. He was, I think, the first US citizen to be killed uh, in that manner without a trial. And in death, He became a hero of sorts. He became larger than life. Uh, And because his lectures and his charismatic nature became so compelling, he is often the through line that we see in the radicalization process of any recruit who speaks English.
7: Uh, From what I saw on Nurul al he was just a guy that gave out speeches and lectures, and he was killed for no reason.
1: I would say that I've not come across any English-speaking uh, jihadi, uh, either in ISIS or al-Qaeda, that did not at some point go through al
7: His lectures made a lot of sense. It was like everything perfectly fitted. And he did play a big role in, um, in convincing me.
1: If you look back to the early recruitment manuals that al-Qaeda, and specifically al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, put out, they talk about approaching people at the mosque go to the mosque, see who is hanging out on, on the fringes of the prayer, the people who are kind of not completely in the in-group, go and try to befriend them, offer them aid, offer them help, see, see what they need. This is the old school way uh, of doing it. On social media, they're doing essentially the same thing. So they present themselves as somebody who is caring and very interested in that person's well-being. That creates a human connection and and from there they begin dropping this ideology uh and and walking through them through the steps of recruitment. One of the first steps that they take you through is this mental shift where you begin seeing the wars in the Middle East, whether it's uh, Syria or Iraq or what happened uh, in Afghanistan, as wars against muslims and And our leaders have gone to great lengths to say that that these military operations are not military operations against a religion. They're military operations against members of a terrorist group. Our nation is waging a war on a radical network of terrorists,
8: not on a religion and not on a civilization.
1: But they turned that on its head and just say, look at who they're fighting. Every single time, who are they fighting? They're fighting Muslims. That's part of the the messaging. The other part of the messaging is they are meeting this person as Muslims. If if the person is a Christian, the very first step in the recruitment is to convert them to Islam. Of course, what they're doing is they're converting them to to their form uh, of Islam. So, so they say to them, you you're a Muslim, right? So you believe in a single god. And, and the and the recruit says, "Yes, yes, of course I believe in a single god." Ah, well, if you believe that there's only one god, let's understand what you really mean by that. And the definition that they want you to accept is that God is everything. God is not just the spiritual entity that you pray to. God is also the legislator. God is the rule maker. God is the lawgiver. Once you accept that concept, you are immediately in conflict with Western society.
6: So just as leaders like myself reject the notion that terrorists like ISIL genuinely represent Islam, Muslim leaders need to do more to discredit the notion that our nations are determined to suppress Islam.
1: In, in fact, you're not just in conflict with Western society, you're in conflict with any society that has a democratic form of government. This, of course, is a minority view of Islam that is accepted only by a m- minority of adherents. And once they accept that, they are then at odds with the society that they live in. So what is the remedy? They have to leave. They have to go to a Sharia-based society. And what is that? So, of course, they're going to present the Islamic State and their so-called caliphate as the home where they can where they can live in a real Islamic society.
7: And I saw it as a direct war on Islam.
1: So you saw it as a war on Islam, yeah. not as a geopolitical dispute of some kind? No.
7: No, we weren't really messing with the Americans in any way.
1: There's a Department of Defense report that just came out that is now estimating that just in Iraq and Syria, there are at least 15 to 17,000 ISIS members still living today. So we are so far worse off today than we were on the eve of 9-11. All of the actions that governments are taking to combat this group on the face of it seemed to make sense. Of course, you don't want this group to hold territory. So, of course, a military operation of some kind is necessary. That seems to make sense, right? That seems to be like a good policy. But unfortunately, in the process of clearing these areas, airstrikes...
0: At least 300 civilians have been killed by U.S.-led coalition airstrikes in Syria over the past two years that is according to an Amnesty International investigation.
1: The use of artillery. Hundreds have been killed across Iraq and Syria in the past two weeks alone, raising questions over whether enough effort has been made to avoid civilian casualties. And the other things that happen in war end up creating large numbers of civilian casualties. And every civilian casualty is is one family that you have possibly lost to this cause. Because if you're, I mean, I, I don't blame them. If your child or your family has been flattened in an airstrike, why would you have any faith in the Western government? And of course you become susceptible to that messaging. So it seems that we're in a bit of a catch-22, and I don't i, I don't know what the way out of it is.
3: You have two choices. You either leave or you fight.
7: You know, we're living a really comfortable life here, a very comfortable life. And... I didn't really get along with that.
3: You leave and live among Muslims, or you stay behind and fight.
0: Hussein's story appeared on the New York Times podcast Caliphate, hosted by Rukmini Kalamaki. He has moved back to his native Canada from Syria and has said since that violence has no place outside the battlefield. But Hussein hasn't completely renounced the ideology that drew him to Syria in the first place. Members of the 9-11 Commission heard many stories like Hussein's.
6: One of the things the report tried to emphasize is that although the enemy wants to make an argument that says this is the West versus Islam and we are the defenders of Islam against the West. We should never do things that play into that false narrative.
0: That's Philip Zelikow. He was the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. Formed in 2002, members of the group spent two years investigating and researching the attacks. They understood that the threat from Islamist extremism couldn't be addressed by military means alone. They needed to figure out a way to fight radical ideas.
6: And so the way to counter that is to provide a sense of hope and constructive messages for Muslims who actually have uh, a more promising agenda for a better life. So then, how do you communicate that message? You can see that's not mainly a message that should be coming out of the mouths of Westerners. There are a lot of things we can do to help enable and facilitate that message. But fundamentally, you're talking about a message that needs to be heard and received by other Muslims.
0: The 9-11 Commission interviewed more than 1,200 people in 10 countries and reviewed over two and a half million pages of documents. Their work culminated in the 9-11 Commission report. It was a book, really, some 600 pages. And it became a bestseller. Millions of copies were sold. The bipartisan commission was co-chaired by Thomas Kane, a former Republican governor from New Jersey, and Lee Hamilton, a former Democratic congressman from Indiana. Congressman Hamilton says he's proud of the work they accomplished and the impact they had, especially the recommendations the commission made to protect the United States.
2: The proof is in the uh, pudding, as they say. We have had some considerable success Uh, We have stopped terrorists from entering the United States by and large. We have eliminated by military force a large number of terrorists. They keep reappearing, of course. We keep eliminating them. Our strategy has evolved, and now we're focusing more as a priority on strengthening fragile states addressing the problems in these fragile societies uh, will protect our own homeland because those fragile societies are the incubators if you will of uh, violent extremism
0: can you talk about some of the the big debates among the members of the commission when it came to soft power tactics not necessarily military tactics, but when it came to diplomacy and trying to change hearts and minds.
2: In general, there was a debate about how do you get across the urgency of the threat in a public relations way? How do we bring about a better understanding of the American people that we have a serious ongoing uh, threat from extremism? then you had a lot of debates on what specifically should we do within the federal government uh, to and local and state governments to improve the uh, role of first responders, uh, to assure security at our borders, to reform the intelligence agencies uh, and uh, steps the Congress could take to improve their oversight of all of this activity.
0: So do you think that the the commission was successful in presenting recommendations to combat extremist ideology? And do you think that those recommendations were implemented or not?
2: We made a large number of recommendations. I forget the number, but it was in excess of 50. Uh, many of those recommendations were Adopted almost in whole. Uh, For example, uh, how do you organize the intelligence community? We recommended the establishment of the Director of National Intelligence to oversee and coordinate uh, all of the 10s or 20 agencies that we had uh, on intelligence. Uh, We recommended the establishment of the National Counterterrorism Center uh, to coordinate these activities. We had a lot of recommendations with regard to the screening of railroad, uh, not railroad, yet railroad, but all more importantly air passengers against uh, all kinds of comprehensive uh, watch lists. Uh, that became a very major visible part of our recommendations.
0: What about providing a counter-narrative to extremist ideology. What do you think is the best way to do that?
2: Well, I think the best way is to understand, first of all, what kind of people you're dealing with and what causes the uh, ideologies to arise. Repressive governments, economic stagnation, corruption, inequality of uh, income, Uh, Lawlessness, injustice, lack of opportunities for young people, all of these things and and many more are kind of a, a toxic brew, if you would, from which extremism grows. Once you understand the causes, then you can begin to try to figure out what to do about them or try to figure it out. And we spent a lot of time doing that in various groups that I've been with. What do you do to bring about uh, healthier, uh, more resilient societies that do not breed terrorism? One of the things we said was we need to listen to local leaders and local actors. Let them take the lead assistance and aid, we think, uh, can be helpful in helping people in a humanitarian way. They have enormous human problems, and we can help those countries move towards stability and, under the best of circumstances, towards uh, open, transparent, accountable societies.
0: That's Congressman Lee Hamilton, a Democrat from Indiana. He was co chair of the 9 11 Commission. Coming up after the break, how the Bush and Obama administrations attempted to adapt the Commission's recommendations and how successful they were in doing it. If you want to join the conversation, find us at our website, pri.org. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This hour, combating extremist ideology since 9-11.
8: So I had this thing that I called Public Diplomacy 2.0, which sounds sort of silly at this point. But the idea was that we shouldn't be out there preaching.
0: That's James Glassman. During the Bush years, he was in charge of a vague-sounding mission, public diplomacy, Basically, that means trying to explain to the world why the United States does what it does, militarily mainly, and convince them to go along with it, or at least not fight it. When Obama was president, Tara Sonnenschein was one of the people who had that job.
9: I was engaged in reaching foreign audiences and helping to shape the understanding of American values and interests overseas, and in part helping to create A narrative around what the United States stands for. And
0: one thing we should note here, both Glassman and Sunnenshine are members of America Abroad Media's advisory board, as are Philip Zellico and Lee Hamilton, whom we heard from earlier. James Glassman came to the Bush administration while also holding another critical post in American messaging. He served as the director of the Broadcast Board of Governors, or BBG. BBG oversees Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, and other international broadcasts, such as Voice of America. Voice of America began in
8: 1942. This is a voice speaking
6: from America. A voice from America at
4: war.
0: After September 11th, the BBG launched a new service called Radio Sawa. USC public diplomacy professor Nick Call says Sawa has had mixed results.
4: The concept was to do a popular music station that would bring together American popular music and Middle Eastern popular music and maybe slip a little bit of news in there too. And this was the concept for Radio Sawa. It was a bold move, some would say a ridiculously ambitious plan, a lot of money went into it, some good people went to work for it, but they made a number of uh, mistakes and learned through doing, but there was no way they were ever going to supplant uh, indigenous media in that region.
0: But how do you create an entity that has both journalistic freedom, but also promotes a pro-American message? James Glassman says it can be messy.
8: The BBG is a great institution. But it is a kind of a separate organization that's out there spinning in its own orbit that's not part of the public diplomacy or just national security uh, apparatus at all in a normal chain of command. And I think that's a big mistake. It's journalistic. On the other hand, it is a tool of American foreign policy. And I really think that that, that's a problem, that's a contradiction that needs to be resolved.
3: I don't think that it is a bad thing at all that there is some dissonance and that sometimes it isn't just the the State Department line coming out. I think the State Department line would get pretty boring uh, if that was all anyone heard.
0: That's Daniel Benjamin.
3: I uh, was previously... The coordinator for counterterrorism and ambassador at large at the State Department, where I was Hillary Clinton's senior advisor on uh, terrorism and Homeland Security. To the extent that you can uh, create a, a little decentralization and have these different uh, broadcasters do their level best at giving the the truth as they see it, um, so much the better. And I think that it's in our interest over the long term to have a kind of diversified media landscape.
0: USC's Nick Cole says the United States has not always fared well when it sponsored media intended for Middle Eastern audiences. He points to Al Hura, which means the free one. That's a U.S.-based satellite TV channel which broadcasts in Arabic.
1: In a media environment that was strictly controlled for decades by the dictator Saddam Hussein, Al-Hurra Iraq was launched in the wake of the Iraq War to provide Iraqi citizens with reliable and unbiased news and information.
4: If you're going to put together an international broadcasting service uh, as a government and you're going to employ journalists and they're going to be speaking, broadcasting in another language, you have to work really hard to... Um convince the audience of your objectivity, and that includes being prepared to be very critical of your own sponsoring
1: government. <laughs>
0: Cole notes that poor production values were also a problem for the network.
4: I did some research in, in Lebanon, some focus groups with Lebanese journalists, talking to them about, well, what did they think about Alhura? And one of them complained that... Uh, saying, I don't want to get news from my dentist. And I asked him what he meant, and he said that the anchor on Al-Hurra had worked at some time in Beirut as a dentist and had administered a root canal procedure on this particular journalist. And so he was extrapolating from this that the journalists at Al-Hurra at that time were, uh, he felt, amateur. And uh, he wanted to see a better... Um, product coming from the United States. And some people would say that Al-Hurra now it has uh, the, the kind of product they were looking for but I, I, I think that its Americanness will remain part of the problem.
1: In this new era, Al-Hurra Iraq will continue to stand out as a constantly reliable and distinctive source of information necessary for democracy to flourish in this dynamic geopolitical environment. Glassman
0: says Alhura wasn't properly funded. One reason for the shoddy production values. He says Congress was just never fully on board.
8: Culturally, uh the United States is not a great enthusiast for what are sometimes considered manipulative communications because of our First Amendment uh background. We just don't think this is something government ought to be doing even if it's in a good cause. Then I think the second problem is within Congress there's very little, not much of a constituency behind soft power or public diplomacy. Whereas there's a tremendous constituency behind military spending. So as a result of that, it really it really depends on the president. The president has to say, this is this is very important to me. Communication is very important to me. And I think that uh, President Bush came around to that toward the end of his term. But one of the things we do do is we provide sort of uh, seed money or, or a way of starting a, an organization or a movement. And we say, yes, we're behind this, but then we kind of let it go and develop on its own.
0: Tara Sunshine says the Obama administration built off that and created other forums for these kinds of conversations.
9: So, for example, if you're talking about religious dialogue, we did have imams. We had pastors and imams from parts of Africa come to the United States. They, in turn, visited mosques and also Jewish synagogues, Catholic churches. So in an attempt to expose them to our concept of freedom of religion, um, you often would have clerics come from overseas, and we would often send people to be exposed to religion overseas.
0: But there were other narratives about the United States that were really hard to counter.
3: Around the world today, one story out of Iraq dominated the news. It wasn't a battle waged or won, it was something quite different. Pictures of American soldiers mistreating, humiliating Iraqi prisoners.
0: And there was the endless detention of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. 700
4: men have come through Gitmo since the beginning of the War on Terror, when these pictures of shackled and
5: hooded men shocked the world.
8: I absolutely um, realized some of the, the problems involved in Guantanamo. Absolutely, I visited Guantanamo.
4: Some say past allegations of border boarding and hunger strikes have turned this place into
8: a terrorist recruiter's dream. I really thought we did a very poor job of explaining what we were doing with Guantanamo, no doubt about it in my mind. So I was, I was definitely in favor of dismantling Guantanamo, as were many people in the Bush administration. However, that was not easy. And you saw that during the Obama administration. I mean, where were we going to send people?
4: When Obama comes in, one of the things he wants to do is to promise the region a new deal.
0: USC public diplomacy professor Nick Cull. Six months after Obama came into office, he gave a landmark speech in Cairo.
4: So
6: long as our relationship is defined by our differences, we will empower those who sow hatred rather than peace. Those who promote conflict rather than the cooperation that can help all of our people achieve justice and prosperity. And this cycle of suspicion and discord must end.
4: He's going to come in as a a new listener, somebody who's grown up in a Muslim country, who has a great respect for Islam, and he doesn't put a foot wrong in Cairo. It's this amazing speech which quotes the Quran, it's culturally sensitive. As
6: the Holy Quran
4: tells us, Be conscious of God and speak always the truth. Gets everybody's hopes up and then nothing happens. In fact, it's more of the same. And in some ways, some things actually increase. There's greater use of
5: drone warfare.
8: Every day there's more killing, he says. These planes
5: flying over, they can hit anywhere they want to hit at any time. You immediately,
4: having raised expectations, they come crashing down again, and Obama then has to rebuild his own uh, profile in the Middle East. And in some places, you know, he couldn't come back from Cairo.
9: Tara Sunenshine worked in the Obama State Department. I went to Pakistan years after um, bin Laden, but also while there were drone strikes, we also had had a death of a Pakistani civilian. So there was a lot of tension around that. And what I found was first of all, I was able to explain that we were not going to allow there to be casualties from the Taliban on the Pakistan side.
0: But sometimes public opinion must take a back seat to the best military option and Daniel Benjamin says in many cases drones were the best option
3: in the latter part of the bush presidency there was pioneering work done on some of the tools that would become essential for the success that the obama administration had particularly involving drone strikes which played a essential role in breaking the back of al qaeda but uh nonetheless you want to keep that those numbers uh, as low as possible and uh, thereby preclude the likelihood that uh Uh, people will uh, get very angry at the United States and turn to uh, extremist measures.
0: Former State Department Undersecretary Glassman says, ultimately, for anyone dealing with messaging, you really have to just play the hand you're dealt.
8: Right. So I think that we we need to explain our policies better than we tend to do. But there are some policies that people are just not going to like because we will be pursuing policies that we think are in our best interest should we make sure that when we pursue a policy, we understand what the potential fallout is as far as um, the way other people are gonna look at it. And that's absolutely true, and I think that's a role that public diplomacy needs to play and frequently, and in fact, most of the time, does not. We in public diplomacy have to take those final decisions as givens and, and work with
2: them.
0: We'll hear from a former national security advisor on the limitations of public diplomacy in fragile states, how messaging and communication can only go so far in the face of economic and political instability. Also, we'll go to Lebanon to see how U.S.-backed efforts at public diplomacy are working to change the hearts and minds of convicted terrorists. She hates the war. She hates
10: the United States with what they happened
0: but she maybe somebody implement the idea that the U.S. did that for her. Just tuning in, you can catch the full episode and past programs by subscribing to America Abroad on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Combating Extremist Ideology Since 9-11 on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This hour, we've been hearing about the need to balance hard power with soft power, mainly from people in public diplomacy. Stephen Hadley was National Security Advisor for four years under President George W. Bush. He was charged with assessing which tools were most valuable in keeping the public safe. And he says, while the 9-11 Commission report included both military and diplomatic recommendations, the implementation of those recommendations was not balanced.
5: You know, we learned uh, over a number of years how to track down uh, terrorists and take them off the field. Uh, And we, of course, knew how to move troops uh, into places like Afghanistan and Iraq to deal with terrorism. But addressing the root causes of extremism, which are things like failed governance Fragile states, inability to provide local security, inability to provide justice and resolve disputes promptly, uh, getting uh, jobs and economic activity going in post conflict societies. Those are a lot harder, it turns out, and they require civilian instruments rather than military instruments. And we really didn't have the kind of uh, inventory that was required.
0: Mm. I think also one of the criticisms is that the Americans and the and the Western coalition didn't really consult or take seriously locals' concerns or what the locals wanted.
5: Everybody talked about reconciliation among competing parties top down. The bigger task in some measure is reconciliation from the bottom up in local communities, bringing Shia, Sunni, Kurds, uh, Turkomans together, uh, dealing with history, overcoming divisions in society, finding a way that social peace can be restored so that refugees can return home, whether they're Sunni or Shia. This kind of bottom-up peace building, uh, repairing the social fabric, that's a real challenge.
0: But is that something that outsiders can even do um, or should do? Should that not come from within?
5: Uh, of course it's got to come from within. You know, people talk about nation building. You know, the United States is nation builders. You know, people have to build their own nations. Uh, you can help from the outside, as we did in the Marshall Plan in World War II and if we tried to do in Iraq and Afghanistan. People themselves have to do it.
0: So in terms of countering the ideology and countering the the way that these organizations are able to recruit people. Uh, The United States is held up as a a great uh, enemy and something to topple in Western ideals in general. It's sort of a clash of civilizations. Has the United States been contributing to that ideology by also participating in that kind of rhetoric in talking about a clash of civilizations?
5: The, uh, there is an ideological struggle out there. The, uh, the, um, the terrorists have a view of the future. It's a pretty grim future. Um, and one of the things that President Bush used to say is there's the kinetic war on terror going after the terrorists, uh, you know, rousting them out of their safe havens. But there was also an ideological aspect of the war on terror, which was having an alternative vision to that offered by the terrorists
0: when you have the Muslim travel ban approved by the Supreme Court, uh, President Trump's travel ban, and his uh, negative comments about Islam, how does that feed into this narrative?
5: Well, you know, the the travel ban has been through a number of in, incarnations, and it's now kind of a shadow of its former self. Um, it's not something I supported. I don't think it helps uh, either at home or abroad. But um, I think the fundamental problem is what we've been talking about: is the the challenges in fragile states of addressing the issues of security, governance, and economic malaise that really need to be addressed if you're going to bring stability to these these kinds of communities.
0: That's Stephen Hadley. He's the chair of the board of directors at the U.S. Institute of Peace and former deputy national security advisor under President George W. Bush. We're going to take a look at a place where Hadley's ideas are actually playing out in the Middle East. Lebanon has long been a center of extremist ideology. It's home base to Hezbollah, which has been deemed a terrorist organization by the United States and others. Lebanon has also been a recruiting ground for ISIS and for al-Qaeda. With U.S. backing, a Beirut organization is trying to prevent that kind of recruiting. Rebecca Collard has more.
10: Okay, we're going right now to the area. It's a very vulnerable area next uh, behind a sports stadium.
11: Maya Yamut and her sister Nancy are on the front lines of some of the U.S. attempts at soft power in the Middle East. The sisters have received several U.S. grants to work with extremists and the people at risk of joining them. For years they have been meeting with Islamists in Lebanon's Rumier prison. They met former ISIS members, men convicted on terror charges, and many that still pledged allegiance to extremist groups. After years of working with extremists in the prison, the sisters founded their organization called Rescue Me and opened this center two and a half years ago to work at the grassroots level with populations at risk. One of the recommendations that came out of the 9-11 commission (laughs) was to offer an agenda of opportunity that includes support for public education and economic openness. The idea is that those who feel helpless or who don't have economic opportunities are more easily drawn to extremism. With the help of the American grants, Rescue Me ran programs that focused on more traditional anti-extremist messaging, but also more practical trainings. We do psychosocial support for every
10: individual. We also do group therapy that they're not alone. And uh, we did uh, vocational training.
11: Among the participants was 22-year-old Omar Halabi. Omar says that since he was young, he's heard people say that America wants wars. Khalibi says he feels like there is a conflict between the West and Islam, but he struggles to put it into words. He seems even more uncomfortable talking about how extremist groups recruit here. But he says at the center he has learned skills that helped him find work. And he says what changed his mind about America was that it helped him. It to um, every time
10: they ask us where the, the fund comes, we told them the United States, from the American people especially. They need to know why I need to hide it. If they
11: don't like it, don't come to the program. Simple as that. Two years ago, the sisters had an idea. They asked some of the prisoners they knew from Rumier to record advice that they would give to their younger selves. In the video, one prisoner says he lives in regret. Religion is not as simple as mathematics, he advises. Ask
12: questions. messaging is one element and it's a key element but you also have to work on their deeper grievances.
11: Osama Greasy is with the United States Institute of Peace. The government-funded institution has run programs across the Middle East that either directly or indirectly counter violent extremism.
12: If you're 18, 19, 20 years old you're looking for a job and there's nothing there's no uh, opportunities for you you know, a monthly wage of $300 from, to, to hold a rifle and to be part of an extremist group um, uh, looks appealing.
11: He says, particularly in Iraq, where the institution has done a significant amount of its work, many communities are asking for more U.S. support.
12: I think in some communities there's a real skepticism, obviously, like, oh, the U.S., you're bombing one day and then you're trying to support the next day. And um, I think that exists uh, everywhere, uh, but for the most part, we've we've heard that, uh, and I've heard people saying more U.S. engagement and more support, and, and not less.
11: As for what that support and engagement has achieved, like so many who work in the field, he says it's almost impossible to know.
12: One of the, the, the things that um, is very hard for us to do is measure. Uh, um, measure the impact uh, largely because a lot of these initiatives and projects are uh, long term. You're going to see the, the impact way down the road.
11: Back in Garbi, Yamut also admits it's hard to know the impact of their programming but she says she's seen changes in participants like Halibi and also at the community level.
10: We implement the idea to not to join. Give them alternative, and the choice is theirs, not ours. Not to join or to join.
11: For America Abroad, I'm Rebecca Collard in Beirut.
0: Changing the narrative isn't easy, but 9-11 Commission Executive Director Philip Zelikow says that while we may be moving in the right direction, some of the progress is being jeopardized by the current administration.
6: Back to the time of the 9-11 Commission and even uh, times in the Bush and Obama administrations, uh, often they tr- both of those presidents tried to stress a message of hope. Um, right now, the American leadership has chosen to stress a message that is 100% a message of fear, loathing, and anxiety. That is, the, that is a hun- 100% of the message. Well, um, there's no room there to articulate a message or an agenda for hope. So, and then you have people who, and of course that rallies people who are already anxious and fearful, but it doesn't uh, advance an agenda very much that's about solving problems.
0: We're in a period now where the battlefield victories against groups like ISIS are the most important victories in the war on terrorism. We rarely hear our leaders these days talk about winning over hearts and minds. Maybe they gave up, maybe they're not interested, or maybe they've realized that fighting bodies has always been simpler than fighting minds. This hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Eric Krupke with additional production help from Molly Schwartz and Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by the United States Institute of Peace's Task Force on Extremism in Fragile States, Public Radio International stations, and listeners like you.